I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. to sit down and to be able to have a, a chance to speak to Donna Morrissey, uh, a nationally best-selling novelist. And, and I guess now I'm, um, is it a memoirist? Is that, is that like, is that what you, <laughs> is, that what right. you is that what you would say? Or, 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 oh, I'm known by many names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, many hats, many hats. Uh, Donna, we're, uh, your, your new book, uh, Pluck, it, it's available now. It is. And, uh, it is uh, a memoir of a Newfoundland childhood and the raucous, terrible, amazing journey journey to become a novelist. Um, I guess before we kind of get into the conversation, um, give us a give us a rundown on on how Pluck came to be and what is in between the pages of this uh, very beautiful beautiful book. <laughs> it's like beautiful. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> where did that music come from? Like, guys, we stepped up the production value. Yeah. Yeah. Cue, cue the cinematic uh, introductory God music. Call. Yeah, 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 you had that set, didn't you? You knew that was coming. Oh, that's that was great. So funny. God, that was. It's my husband too. He is so picky about these things. Oh, Just wait till I tell him he fucked up. <laughs> the intro. So we pick, just pick it up. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. yeah, 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 pick it up from wherever. We don't cut anything. Intro, yeah, that, that, no, that's staying in. That's gold. That's we make the most gold. of. Uh, we make the most of interruptions. <laughs> and stuff like that, so. Well, I've written uh, six novels, and in each one of them, they've always been inspired by what I've seen or what I've done or people I've known. So they've always been inspired by my family, and uh, and we've had a lot of tragedies in our family, and. Um, but no matter how deep I went into a character, I could never get that story in there of the mental illness. You know, you just couldn't mm. go deep enough with it because when you're writing fiction, fiction has its own way of presenting itself. So it takes your characters and derails what you want to do mm-hmm. and it becomes something else. So there was never ever a character that could carry the story of the, what I experienced with mental illness. Mm. That's, so, it, that's interesting that you that that it didn't. Because I, I, I think when, if I think about what I would what I would write about, I. It sounds almost like there, you, there's a there's an element in, in the way that um, like an actor, an actor really creates like a a, 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 like a a character that stands alone that is that is in many ways completely devoid of the actual person that the actor is in in their everyday life. Like creating a creating a character. Like I, I'm I'm surprised that 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 mental illness doesn't naturally find its way into the characters that you create is that just because you you are like creating characters that are so like uh, 
well, I'm, I don't want to use the word authentic, but like uniquely them. Well, fiction is like that. It's fiction actually contains more truth than memoir because with fiction, you're allowed to uh, really write what you know and what you've learned and what you've studied and what you research. But when you're writing a character, they're flawed, uh, but you know, you kind of control them, but they have a way of becoming themselves. And if they're not mentally ill, it doesn't, you can't make them mentally ill. Mm -hmm. So they they just choose their own path. Hmm. And so many is the time, you know, you expect a kid to walk out the door and it's a dog instead. And you, you're, you're just a writer. So yeah. you have to follow mm. what's coming. Mm. So no, I couldn't get a character good, uh, that would carry that, that mental illness for me. I, I, I think of um, when sometimes when I go to therapy and I talk about my challenges that I'm going through, I'll sometimes think of like what would be like the movie script version of how this should play out. And I don't know. It's it's, it's hard, sort of hard to articulate this idea, but um, oftentimes my therapist has to sort of remove me from like the expectation of how that will play out in that sort of movie script version of life that I build in my head and bring me back to like what is actually reality. Mm. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm like hearing you talk about writing fiction versus then going into this, the, the memoir and, and, it, it makes me think that like it, it could be really challenging to not write that like piece, that character into that beautiful piece of fiction that makes sense in the story that you want to tell because there are so many flaws in life that might just be really hard to put into a piece of fiction. Does that, does that make sense? Is that? Well, that, that makes sense. And if I were to set out to write a novel, you know, that revolved around mental illness I think it would come easier but I never set out to write a novel about that I always had so many other things you know the death of my teenage brother under my watch it was a huge one for me and uh, my Mm. father and the fishery in Newfoundland and its decline and um, so many other things that was in my life the mental illness wasn't there it was something that I I, like I wrote myself out of all of the other tragedies in my life, then I'm left with this one. Mm-hmm. The only way I felt I could write that was through personal experience. I, so when I first wrote it, again, being a, a fiction writer, I tried to get the character to carry it. I tried, so I saw myself as a character, mm-hmm. and that's and so the, so the character carries you, you know. Mm. And that's when fic, uh, Penguin sent it back and said, No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. You just wrote fiction. <laughs> so we want you. You we need yeah. more of you in here, not this person that you just created around yourself. Mm-hmm. So then that's where the vulnerability comes in on a couple of levels. One is the indulgence. Yeah. You're writing purely about you now. And yeah. you know, and I love to talk, but I like bouncing the ball around and I like interaction. So to just talk about me and write about me. Felt like an indulgence. Right. And, yeah. uh, like, do you feel like you get to a point where you're like, Jesus Christ, I'm fucking tired of hearing myself talk. You know? like, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I was yeah. speeding through stories and I was cutting them short. And, uh, and right. you know, so then I was editing lots of it out. And uh, so it got really challenging as to what. So then Penguin came up with a question for me and said, OK, this will be the backbone of your memoir. How do you go from living in an isolated outport to becoming an international selling author? Mm. How did that happen? happen for you Mm. and so then it gave me the focus that I needed you know you start with imagination and so you thread that through and what happened Mm. in your journey through becoming that That, author I 
I'm really that. So at that point, I find very interesting. Um, and I think that I think that it's for a little bit of context for our listeners. Um, you are you're from Newfoundland uh-huh. um, and you're from like a really, really small community. Small, small. Twelve houses on a bit of beach. Yeah. Wow. And 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 uh, uh, you were when you were a child, like what year was it in in? 56. 56. So 56 in a small community in Newfoundland where... No roads, no electricity, no telephones. So no telephones, no television. No. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, how much of... It, it, it makes me... I can't help but think about how... If you look at like generations today, um, people like our age who... I've, I've never known a time where I didn't have television, where I wasn't like watching the stories of other characters develop and and how that how that has gone on to affect the way that I see the world and the way that I relate to my own story and and it, you know if I was to write a book today there's there's no way that those things that I watched and and you know took in growing up would not influence what what I ended up putting on paper whether it was conscious or not and so how much do you, do you think about that? Like how much do you think the, the, your childhood in a place that is so isolated has had an effect on the characters that you've written, has had an effect on you as a person? Um, you know, like you're, you're kind of left to your own imagination to create the world around you when you're, when you're growing up at a, at a point in time where, like you said, there's no electricity, there's no television, there's no telephones. There's like, there's such a, there's such a lack of, of accessibility to the outside world. Like how much of that played into the way that you write today? Well, I think looking back now, it, it was my greatest strength coming from that environment because we absorbed so much. Mm. I mean, we just had the life around us. So everybody was a character. You knew everyone. You mm. knew your grandmother, your uncle, your, you know, the mentally ill kid down the road that you, you wouldn't look at twice here in the city. Mm-hmm. But in an outport, you got no choice to hang out with because she's your cousin right. and your mother is making you. And um, <laughs> so you get to know people. You yeah. get to know people through and through and through. And when my mentally challenged cousin, you know, uh, and we didn't have that word back then. Right. We didn't have any word. We didn't have retarded. We didn't have stupid. We just said like poor. Poor right. Josie. Right. Well, yeah. poor, poor Josie. Here comes poor Josie, you know, <laughs> and uh, go play with her. No, go play with her. Okay. You know, but then the day comes when poor Josie helps you because you fell down and lost all your berries. Nobody else would because they're all on their own. Mm. But Josie don't care about filling her bucket of berries, you know, mm-hmm. so she'll help you pick up the ones that you let fall. So you get to make friends with Josie mm-hmm. and you get to know her on all different levels, you know. So she becomes more than just poor Josie. You know, the mentally challenged kid, she becomes Josie in a lot of different ways. Mm. And so it's like that with everybody. And even today, you know, you go back home and sit in the bar, you don't sit with your own age group. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll sit with Uncle Jack or Aunt Bessie yeah. or some asshole. Then the, <laughs> the, the, yeah. the, the guy's making the moonshine. You right. sit with whoever beckons you to come. It's mm. like that. That was and one it, of my favorite, like, what, I mean, we were speaking before my, my, my mom's side of the family's from Newfoundland. And, <clears throat> and uh, I'll, one of my, to that point of like how you, how, and, and I find this, uh, uh, as opposed to lots of other places that I've been that are rural, Newfoundland seems to be, to have quite a unique nature in terms of its, uh, it's like commun- sense of community 
especially when you're when you get down into smaller places and more rural places with smaller populations. I went to a place called a, a, a town called Whitburn. A friend of mine who I played uh, junior hockey with lived there. We went there and went to his house. And this is kind of like a really condensed timeline of this night. Get there, his house. Me and him, same age. A few of his friends, same age. We go to a party. Parties, you know, now parties probably like 19 to 25 or 27 or something like that. Age ranges expand a little bit. Then we walk down the road and we end up in someone's shed. And there's a there's a group playing and there's a guy playing the ugly stick and and now the group has expanded from That's like a, eighteen to yeah. to forty, forty five. The ugly yeah. stick is the thing. The ugly stick is a, is a, is a, is an instrument with a bunch of bottle caps attached to it. It's a stick with a bunch of bottle <laughs> caps attached to it, and you hit it on the ground. And it's, sick. I'm it's a like mainlander. A, yeah, you're a mainlander. You don't you don't know. And then uh, and then and then we end up at a bar, and the bar is the whole. It's the only bar in town. So you got so you're there, and 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 it's eight for everybody from eighteen to. Or nineteen, maybe to uh, to you know the <laughs> oldest per- the oldest person in town, and everyone's <laughs> dancing with each other and having a laugh with each other and doing their thing. And there's just like there's this incredible sense of of community. That's what I kind of wanted to say about Newfoundland and why I love it. Part of why I love it. Mm-hmm. But in terms of fiction writing, do you find that when you are within a, a community that is so small and there's you know you know everybody, and you know and maybe contrast that to like you know, New York city where you could go out and you could, you know, you could walk a different path to the same place every day and never take the same path twice, never see the same person twice, that sort of thing that it just leaves. You just have so much room for creation to, for creating ideas and like for fiction to blossom because there's so, I don't, I don't want it to sound rude by saying there's so little reality, but like it's a small reality is condensed. Reality is very, very small. Yeah. So there's so much room for your imagination to wander and create and create a different reality in your mind, a fictional reality. Yeah. I mean, when I left the beaches, I went to Corner Brook, which was an hour's drive away, but it was as far away to me as New York and psychologically as far away from me as New York. I was the Bay Girl Mm -hmm. and they were all sophisticated there. They were doing drugs. They were doing acid. They were doing the old rock and roll stuff. I just came out of the beaches where we were still, you know, playing the accordion and doing the square dance. So (laughs) I was in shock and, uh, and I, I just loved it. I, I loved everything and Mm -hmm. I went with the ride and I rode it hard. Mm -hmm. And then Newfoundlanders were like mushrooms. You find one, there's 10 more pops up. So you had to go far and wide to get away from the Newfoundlanders. And I never did anyway. And that's why I still talked about it. (laughs) My mom's accent has has all but completely left. A few glasses of so wine. When, when she has a few glasses of wine, the accent rises to the top. But she, she's put it. She's 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 shoved it down, which, which I'm amazed by. Donna, I wanted to ask about um, the like the process of writing a memoir and and like getting into when when you mentioned that Penguin sent back the first draft and was like, "Don't write yourself as a character. Like like write you. Talk about talk about you in in a more vulnerable way. I guess. Um, I imagine that it's it's sort of like therapy in the sense that mm. you're given this guiding question that you sort of have to dig into and understand your journey through using that question to understand your experience going through life. But then it's very unlike therapy in the sense that you're then publishing that and giving it to the world to read. Um, have you have you ever gone to therapy and and do you see any parallels in that experience or... Like, 
I tried, I tried, I, I prayed for therapy when I went through that black hole, uh, when I, I was misdiagnosed with a terminal illness and I, my mind broke eventually and I prayed for therapy. But, you know, even though back then and uh, so that would have been in the seventies. And so even in the big cities, they still didn't have language for what was going on with me. And so I felt the old world felt like a big fucking bay to me. Nobody mm. could understand what I was saying. I didn't have the words to tell them. I, I was a high school dropout, but they didn't have the words either. You know, mm. it was only when I went to university and I was 32 and I started studying that I came across myself in an abnormal psychology book, you know, anxiety, free floating mm. anxiety. Mm. And, and that's when no uh, one ever attached those words no. to you. No, they all, they all said stress. It's like mm. stress. And I'm like, okay, what's stress? That sounds hopeful. <laughs> and it's like, well, stress <laughs> is, you know, too much going on in your life. It's like, oh, Jesus, when has that not? been happening but yeah. i don't see everybody else yeah and when around like happen? me you know yeah. and uh but that's when uh the drugs started first coming out what was it called ssris or yes but it was the very first prozac one, prozac came out mm. and when prozac came out it changed the language everybody had mm. words they could now use and they started coming out with ssris and the serotonin uptakers and all of that so you know but by then i was under control i had myself under control um, so I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this, but mm -hmm. in the beginning, even though I was out of the outports into the larger community, they still didn't have the language for mental mm. illness. Yeah. They still didn't know what the hell we were going through. But I think there's a whole lot more of that happening now. So, yeah. so, so what was that? What was that experience? You, I mean, you know, I'm, we can't simply gloss over, um, the, uh, accidentally diagnosed with, <laughs> with a terminal illness. Yeah. What was, what was that? experience why did that happen and and how did that lead to and 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 what was that transition to um dealing with like anxiety in the aftermath of that yeah well that, that's a big question there buddy and uh <laughs> 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 like take a few days with that one but uh we well that's it. great because it, i'm sure the detailed version is in the book <laughs> it, it <laughs> you give us you give us the teaser it is well i was you know First, there came the trauma, and the trauma was in my bones of my brother's death when he was 19 and I was 23. And again, I didn't have the right way to marshal that. Coming from a small community, you you didn't talk, you know, you just didn't know how to talk about such things. Mm -hmm. But the grief went deep, and the trauma was huge. And uh, then there was more trauma. And then when this doctor, who was, albeit not the greatest doctor in the world, okay, he came from a place where tetanus was rampant and... Um, he probably was the lowest grade in his class, if he even got at a class. And he diagnosed me with tetanus. Which you did not have. Which I did not have. Right. And he gave me up to six months to live. Oh, shit. And then to compound That's that. That's serious tetanus is? It, it is. No. It can be fatal. It can be. Okay. Yeah. But not with us, because we had our shots. As right. my father said, lovey, unless you had a hole in the bottom of your foot and you walked out in the field and stepped in cow shit, you don't have tetanus. <laughs> but it's like, Daddy, the doctor said it, and the doctor knows more than you. Yeah, well, it turns right, out yeah. Daddy knew more than the doctor yeah, right. because it was found out I did not have tetanus. But it tripped my mind because the trauma was already in there, mm -hmm. and I was going through a lot of uh, stress in the home life and um, stuff that I can't even get into. I don't want to get into, not even in the memoir, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, the added combination of the grief, the trauma, the stress of what I was going through in my life, it that diagnosis just tripped my mind. Mm -hmm. And it was about two weeks later. It doesn't just happen in the moment. Oh, he said this and then this happened. 
It took a couple of weeks and my mind was, my body was in a state of vulnerability mm -hmm. and uh, shock. And even though I didn't really know it, but I just knew something was off because everything was gunning just a little too hard inside. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then one night it happened. I just had a party, listening to the stones, rocking up over the stairs, you know, and suddenly everything went black. And I just went to my knees and it was like something hit me. It was physical. Mm. It was physical, like something hit me and everything was locked in terror in my entire body. I mean, and I'd done some like bad acid like in that my was, time, but it was nothing like this. Yeah. You know? like that this was the moment. That was the moment. That was where the moment where, where my body went from being this to that. So this became the before and after, before that moment and after that moment. Because mm. after that moment, nothing was ever the same again, mm. ever. Wow. Can we talk about the, the sort of um, seemingly generational gap between... Um, like our ability to talk about mental illness today versus what it was like to talk about those things mm. when, when you were younger. Um, before we started recording, I was, I was telling you sort of uh, about how it's really fascinating for me to sit down and talk to my dad about things like mental health. And uh, because when I, when I talked to him about those types of things, you know, like there was a time where he was struggling a little bit. Um, it really feels like he has zero capacity to, to articulate the things that he is feeling. And I feel like that lack of articulation comes from just a lack of um, vocabulary, a lack of experience in talking about those sorts of things. Do you feel like that resonates with you that, you know, from wh whether it's the, the small town that you came from or, 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 or maybe more so just the, the general conversation about mental health, um, with your generation? Like, do you feel like you, you came up in a time where there just wasn't the conversations happening that are happening now? And, and how has that, how has that played a role in your life and how has that affected you? Well, exactly what you just said in my generation and where I come from, it wasn't talked about but even in, as I said previously, in the cities, it wasn't talked about and or it was talked about in a language that really didn't uh, understand what we were experiencing. Mm. But somehow and now in the last 20 years, with the advent of the SSRIs, it seems like the language has just opened up. Mm. And suddenly I can now look back on it and see what happened and understand it and articulate it. And when I first started writing, I couldn't do any of that. You know, it's only now, so when you're writing a memoir, when you're writing a memoir, the difference in memoir and fiction is when you hit those big moments like my brother's death and uh, my subsequent, subsequent guilt and my mother's cancer and that journey, when you hit that stuff in memoir, you've got it figured out. Yeah. Mm. Because, you know, you can't write a memoir unless you know what the hell you're talking about. Mm. So you can't just, it's not, it's not therapy in a sense that you write it and figure it out. You can't. You got to know it before because you, you got to know what you're putting on paper. Yeah. You know, and so without the language and without understanding, I could never have written this book, uh, say, ten years ago. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot. Go for it. But would you be willing to read uh, a oh, little geez, section? I just asked you if I'd need my glasses, uh, and little, you said no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's right. you did. You did say that. I, did, I wasn't expecting to do this, but uh, but it. I'm. I. I. All of a sudden, I feel inclined to, to, get to read. Has struck. And in particular, one one um, one passage. 
which is the last couple of paragraphs in um, in the chapter that I believe is titled All is Grace. Um, so the end of 199, chapter 19. Okay. Right to the end? Yeah, right to the end. Uh, Brad, can you just uh, hit that there so I know the timestamp here and I can make a quick edit? This is uh, this is fantastic. A little private. Oh yes, because okay. I feel like uh, this little segment here is actually quite relevant to what uh, what it is we're talking about right now. Yes, and when I wrote this, and all while I was going through the horror of mental breakdown, all I thought about was the old guys out in the bay, you know, and the women in the bay who who had no one to listen to mm-hmm. or, or to understand <coughs> and how could they. And I, when I was writing this book, I just wanted this book to reach those darkest corners where people were suffering mm-hmm. and maybe this could reach them in some way, you know? Mm. So they, so yeah, here goes. Um, in the months to come, I made a new friend, Angela, who was studying psychiatry. One day, sitting on her sunbathed deck and admiring her potted red and pink geraniums, I shared with her my anxieties, my possible PTSD, and she told me about a new class of drugs for anxiety disorders known as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. Serotonin, she explained, is a chemical that nerve cells produce in the brain. Sometimes, through stress or malfunctioning or other reasons, the brain can stop producing it. And when it did, anxiety and depression can be the result. She described an experiment in which rats, when deprived of serotonin, curled into quivering balls of nerve, and how when it was reintroduced, they relaxed into their natural way of being. I listened to her. I listened and listened. I watched the chickadees flitting about her bird feeders, their chirping receding as I thought back on the trauma of my brother's accident the hard-edged anger incurred for months during a broken marriage, the poverty that followed its fall, the trauma of the doctor's misdiagnosis. I understood then how it had happened, how that night when terror struck, it had brought me to my knees. It was physical. For years, I'd been a car running out of motor oil. When it finally emptied, I'd blown up inside. I looked at Angela, her coppery hair shining in the sun. I was unable to speak. I bowed to the knowledge she'd just given me. I bowed to the SSRIs, and I walked home that day armed with that knowledge and yet hearing whispers of doubt. What if they don't work? What if they work for everybody else but not you? What if they cut the final thread connecting you to sanity? Screw the whispers. I recognized my fear of the fear itself, and I knew that the fear was nothing more than a symptom, a symptom of an illness that pills can work with, just as insulin works with sugar diabetes. May God bless pharmaceuticals. And yet, I wouldn't go to a doctor for a prescription. What if the pills broke my hold on reality? I'd lived the past four years without knowing what was happening to me, I told myself and I'd been able to control it to a large degree. Perhaps what I'd learned from Angela would give me an even greater sense of control. And if I ever began sinking too deeply into that black hole of fear and despair, I'd get the prescription. There, I had a plan, a trump card for future use. 
I was good. A bee buzzed too close to my ear, sounding like a buzzsaw hacking through my brain. I leapt in fright and then calmed myself. A misfiring of synapses and the resulting anxieties flooding through me, nothing more than a bloody, awful, stupid fucking symptom. Whoa. <laughs> that was amazing. I, I um, thank I you. have thank a, you for that. Yeah, thank you. That was that was incredible. Um, a question that's kind of been stewing in my head, um, since we began, is um, when you think of um something that's like really common among among prolific writers, um, is mental health struggles. Um, um, you know, Hemingway. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read On Writing by Stephen King. It's a uh, it's like a half memoir, half instruction manual to write. So it kind of goes in and out of his um, his life as a writer, um, and goes and then goes into his process as a as a writer. And it's uh, something I read back in 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 high school, which was really touching when I was taking a lot of literature and English classes. And um, what do you? And, and I think that there's a a bit of like a pop culture sort of notion that that like the artist or the writer like the affliction is what makes the quality come to life and i'm interested to know if if that's something that you've ever thought of if you think that there's if that, if that's valid if it's ridiculous um just kind of interested in, in your thoughts I, on I, i've thought about that quite a bit because people ask that all the time why why do so many artists commit suicide it's mm -hmm. like jesus don't say that to me please i'm having <laughs> a bad moment <laughs> but uh i think some of us are born a little too close to the um, this is going to sound nuts okay but i think you know there's a great beyond and i think some of us have a huge sensitivity to it and I think some of us are just a little too close to it and our egos just aren't strong enough to separate us completely from it. So I think a lot seeps in. And I think that um, because we feel so deeply, you know, something that touches you may not cut you so much, but if it touches me, it cuts me deeper mm -hmm. because I have that super sensitivity. Mm -hmm. And I think that happens to a lot of artistic people or creative people. And I think, yes, that that probably contributes to the creativity because they absorb so much and it, and they need to get it out somehow. And this is the channel that calls them to do it. And uh, mm -hmm. that's how I, I kind of think it. It's really interesting. I, I, I think of that in the sense that I was having this really interesting conversation with a close friend of mine that I work with uh, a few months ago. And, and he had a lot of trauma in his life as well. And we were talking about how trauma and the challenges that you go through in life um, whether you overcome them or whether you're still dealing with them, they sort of give you this really like interesting perspective on life. And sometimes that can manifest in artistic ways and ways that you communicate and tell your stories with other people. And I don't think that it's a necessary ingredient for creating art, but it definitely, it, especially the emotional impact that it can have on you, um, can manifest in really beautiful ways when you're able to sort of channel that and focus it into these different sort of places, whether it's writing or design work, or drawing or illustration or any of the arts. And so I don't think it's a necessary thing, it's, but it's certainly something that can be a catalyst to creating really well, beautiful think, forms of art. I think people art. who suffer seek to not suffer. Mm. And uh, it sends us looking 
for answers to understand because we're always trying to find a way out of the suffering and mm -hmm. the fear. Mm -hmm. And so we find things, you know, and we are attracted to others who might have answers. And so I think we tend to look a little deeper. Mm -hmm. And I think because we know what we're feeling, we know what we're looking for. And I think because we know what we're looking for, we might find it. And then that gives us the edge with putting it on the paper. But I tell you that um, when I think back on my mentally challenged Josie back in the beaches, I'd rather be there living her life, stressing mm. over whether or not the fucking soap opera is going to come on today mm. than sitting down to write another novel if I could get rid of that <laughs> suffering. Because uh, I think I wrote a line in the book that says anything that isn't suffering is heaven. Mm. I, I want to talk about the passage that you, you read. Um, it's really powerful to talk about when, when, when your friend talked to you about SSRIs and you feel like all of a sudden like there's the answer, but then there's the fear that fear. like I don't, I don't want to, there's these drugs that could help me feel better, but maybe just the fact and knowing that they're there can, you know, sort of give me the confidence to like move forward. Like, I feel like that's such a, a, a really common experience for people who are suffering from um, mental illness go through this idea of like, I don't want to, I don't want to take drugs. I don't want, I'm, I'm afraid that they'll change who I am. I'm afraid that they'll, they'll like you said, you know, snap that last piece of fiber yes. that's tethering you to reality. As long as those drugs are there, there's hope. Yeah. And if you take them and they don't work, the hope is gone. Mm. And the only reason I took them, I went 10 years, okay? And mm. the memoir might sound earlier, but I went 10 years living with that hell and uh, I learned how to live with it. Mm -hmm. And um, then I wrote that first novel and then I had to get on a plane mm -hmm. and I had to, and became, became a national bestseller. Mm -hmm. And then it went international and I had to go on a plane. I was agoraphobic. I was, I had 10 ongoing phobias. Mm. How the hell was I going to do that? And so I had no choice. I had to take that pill and pray. Was and it I 10 did. years after that conversation with Angela? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's how long it was before oh, you yes. took the step. Oh, yeah. And yeah. when you did take that leap of faith, how, how did it pan out? Oh, you know, little tiny things become major. Little things. Uh, this one woman said to me, she said, uh, you know, when you take it, the first night is going to be really bad, okay? So remember that, you know, and uh, thank God if she hadn't said that, I probably would have, I don't know what I would have done because when you, when I took that first pill, it, the anxiety was, was amplified mm -hmm. and I rocked my way through the night on my hands and knees. I just rocked saying the Lord's Prayer over and over and over a million thousand times, right? Mm -hmm. Until it became lighter and, and ease. And from that moment onward, you know, when it started, um, the anxiety started lessening because anxiety is a fear. It's, mm -hmm. it's fear within you. It's, it's a feeling. It's like, you know, um, it's very physical. It. Mm -hmm. and it, it scares you to death because you can't control it. And then it started blunting the fear when the pill finally started doing its thing. It was sort of like a buffer between the fear and the brain mm -hmm. and the signal lost its strength and power. And since that day onward, and so it wasn't 10 years to that day. I was probably three years between, between after talking to Angela, so probably six or seven years after that. And since that one day, I have not missed one fucking day <laughs> without taking that pill. <laughs> and you know what my biggest fear today is? 
going somewhere and being hijacked or kidnapped and my pills are going to be <laughs> yeah, right. taken from me. And I was like, no, no, no. I, 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 I rehearsed. What will I say to my kidnappers? Oh, I, I, I will die. I will have a heart attack or heart pills. Please get them. You know, yeah. That yeah. is the fear. Are you filled with any, are you filled with any curiosity having been taking, taking medication for so long in, and I, and I don't mean this in like a, to like stop a, taking a, them to, to see what would happen. Like, did, does that, are you curious about that? Like what, like, just because I remember, it's been so long. I remember the fear so well. And I have not felt that kind of fear now in 20 years, okay? I've been on, I am the poster girl for SSRIs. Since I started taking them, the fear has been a thousand miles away from me. Mm-hmm. But the, the shadow of it is like a vulture just over your head. You know it's there. Because mm. once you know hell, you can never not unknow it. Mm. Once you see this extra world out there. You will never forget it, mm-hmm. right? And will I chance going back in there? No. Yeah. And I've been tempted because I feel so good with the pills. Sometimes I feel great, you know? Yeah. And then maybe I might start easing off them a bit here and there. And then I just feel a little bit of anxiety because you're going to have the, uh, you know, and some people do it and power to them, you yeah. know? I'm a win. Why fix what's not broken? Is my- Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts at giant eagle you may have spotted the stacker with uncanny my perks ability she stacks up the perks to choose either dollars off or up to 20 percent off her entire grocery bill the stacker stacking up huge savings with my perks find your my personality and transform your shopping into free gas and groceries full details at gianteagle.com slash my perks Perks cannot be earned or redeemed on select items. Restrictions apply. I I find it really interesting, and that really um, resonated with me because I recently did a, an ADHD assessment um, with my therapist, and I was telling my my dad about it a couple days later, and immediately he was like, "You're not going to take any pills, are you?" And and like it kind of it it kind of like it hurt me in the sense that like I was opening up to him about something that I've been struggling with and something that I feel a sense of hope and better understanding it. And my first reaction when I spoke to my therapist about it wasn't to, it wasn't that I wanted pills to provide me with a solution to the potential problems that I was experiencing, but just having an understanding of what I was living with and how my brain might work differently to the people around me. Um, I felt like, oh, there's hope in like talk therapy and, and, you know, using other types of coping mechanisms to understand how I react. However, if, you know, there comes a time in my life where I feel like maybe medication could benefit me, it wouldn't be something that I would rule out exploring. But immediately my dad saying, don't take those pills. Yes. It makes me feel like there's there's something wrong with me rather than looking at myself as just being a unique being in this world. 
Yeah, I'm well, like, oh, I'm broken. I'm fucking yeah, broken. Yeah, I, I mean, I just got to get this in there. If you're a diabetic, you're not going to stop taking your insulin. Exactly. <laughs> and so with me, my brain no longer makes serotonin. Mm. So maybe, because so the, the pills have been making it for me. Mm. You know, so if I stop, I'm just going to be back there again. Or maybe my brain has mm. learned to make it, but I'm too afraid to check it out, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so... Uh, I, I'm okay. I'm 65 years old. Jesus, I'm not going to live that much longer. So, hey. <laughs> and I think that speaks to yeah. that speaks to what Jeremy was talking about earlier with his dad. Like, you know, there's there's just you're just more likely when you talk to people of uh, uh, of an older generation, you're more likely to meet further resistance mm-hmm. around talking about that subject. I think definitely, and, yeah. and 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 because there's more resistance, maybe maybe a, 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 a bigger lack of understanding or exploration or vocabulary or whatever, all the things that we kind of t- touched on earlier, then you're more likely to get, instead of a dialogue and a constructive exploration of like, hey, so there's like, there's, there, there's pills that you can take. Like, how do you feel about taking pills? Do mm-hmm. you want to take pills or do you not want to take p- pills? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you feel about medication? Instead of that, it's almost like immediately implanting Mm-hmm. how I feel about it or how he feels about it onto you versus. Yeah. I, I guess when I think about it, like if I was to think about how I wish he would have responded, I would probably say that I wish that he would have said something like, um, well, how do you feel like ADHD shows up in your life? Like, what do you, where do you feel like that causes disorder in mm-hmm. your life? And, and I would have answered with something like, well, you know, I, I like I did really well in high school and then I went to university and, quit after the first year and then tried another program and then quit after the first year of that program. And so what if I had a technique to understand how to focus during those moments? What if I had access to medication that might've helped me stay focused and, and apply myself in that program? Um, like, was that the right path? Maybe not. But if I had somebody to sort of ask me questions about it, rather than just saying, you're not going to do this thing, you're not going to, because that would mean that you're broken if you, because that's what I heard. I heard, well, don't take medication because as soon as you do that, then that's you're you admitting, admitting a failure. Yeah. yeah. And or you're not going to be you anymore. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that's the generational gap is like, okay, like we're all unique. And I'll say it again, like we're all unique human beings, individuals going through life and we all have our things. And some people experience, um, mental illness on a spectrum that's much higher or heightened than than other people, but the only way that we can understand that is by having conversations and talking mm-hmm. about it and seeing professionals and not and not having stigma around accessing those things because you feel like you're less than mm-hmm. because you're pursuing answers in those areas of your life. Ooh. Well, we now know that that uh, we know now better than we did before. Mm-hmm. about how to approach those conversations. And we, I think we can kind of look at that experience that you had with your dad. You know how when you get something from Ikea, you get the little like how-to booklet of how to put it together. <laughs> and there's always like a, like a little bubble that pops up and it's like, but don't do this. Like, don't do it this way. Because if you do it that way, this is, this is going to be fucked. Like this is going to collapse on you. It's like if there was a pamphlet of like how to approach a conversation about something going on with your mental mm. health that you were talking to somebody, it would be like, you know, Brian goes to his dad and says this, his dad says this. And it's like, like X <laughs> don't over do this that one. thing. And then like the check mark on the next conversation. That's like, do it this way. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that, you know, there's just, we just have a better, 
we just we're, we're we've moved into a place and this is kind of i feel like been a big theme of the conversation is like you know going from you know smaller town rural places uh you know like isolation not having vocabulary evolving into you know uh evolving into having more of a vocabulary more of an, an ability to talk about these things um and then going back to something that you said don is that uh, like writing a book that hopefully you know, gives the capacity, mm. a bigger capacity to people in, that are still in these really small and isolated communities because there's still a ton of them out there, all, especially all across Canada. I mean, think about how big Canada is and how many small places there are out there with, with very small populations. Giving a resource that might help people find the vocabulary and find the ability to think and process and have conversations about mm -hmm. these things in a way better way. Yeah, I, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to. I went in such detail with it because I wanted people to understand. Like when you say, "Oh, I had a breakdown," or "I had a nervous breakdown," or "I had this," or "I had that," it doesn't tell you anything. I don't even know what that means. Mm -hmm. I had a nervous breakdown. What is, that has no meaning. So I, I wanted to tell it in a it's way. It's like stress in the seventies. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. yeah no meaning. I wanted people to read it and then connect to the words, to the feelings, and I throw it out everywhere. And I'm, I'm always shaking my little vial of pills and saying, you know, well, I, I have no problems with uh, putting it out there. I just, mm -hmm. and so many people come up to me after, and it's always, you know, on the quiet. <laughs> um, you know what you were talking about there? <laughs> I, I had some of that. And it's like, well, it sounds like you still do. <laughs> Let's talk, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Donna, I got to say, this has been a real pleasure to sit down and talk to you about uh, your book, Pluck. Uh, again, Pluck, a memoir of Newfoundland childhood and the raucous, terrible, amazing journey to becoming a novelist. It is available now. It's available uh, at Chapters, Indigo. Uh, it's available at your local bookstore. If you feel like Jeffrey Bezos hasn't been doing good enough, it's also available on Amazon. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you, you for coming it. in and, uh, and, and doing this. It really does mean a lot. Thank mm. you, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, good. Even though the topic was so god darn grim, <laughs> the book is about other things too. That's, that's our favorite thing—the grim yeah. topics. That's yeah. where, that's that's our that's where we uh, yeah. where we like to hang out. Shine I, light I, on. I just want to ask: um, Did did you do an audio version? Yes, I did, and did, I read it myself. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, sweet. I think that's awesome. I think that adds a lot of value. And not to again, not to you know the whole Newfoundland thing. I think that I think that Newfoundland accents are beautiful and. And, Me too. And very like, there's a quality to it that makes you just want to listen and listen and listen. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that you did the that you did it yourself because it's really you have a great voice for it. Mm -hmm. It's Thank like you. the home of storytellers. It very yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I've never met a Newfoundlander who who wasn't good at <laughs> ripping off a good story. <laughs> yeah, you don't mean ripping off someone else's story. You mean. Just like just belting out a story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Donna. <laughs> Thank you, guys. It's great. Thanks. That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, make sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is a Snack Labs production. It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin. And Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis.
That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.